Welcome, <laughs> listeners. <laughs> Welcome. Alex, James, what's up? Oh, not a whole lot. Just living my best life. Oh, yeah? How are you living your best life? Assault Joker. (laughs) (laughs) Another movie. Another movie. And you liked it, right? Yeah, it was really good. James, have you seen any movies lately? (sighs) Nothing interesting. Actually, I did watch, finally, The the Ritual on Netflix. It's part of my, like, I watch Halloween movies all month. And uh, it was pretty dang good, I gotta say. Um, listeners, welcome to the 13th Floor Podcast, where we talk about strange things and weird things, and we just try to keep it real. Keep it strange. Well, <laughs> we're, this week we're talking about famous mystics and yeah. prophets, Yeah. but before we get started, we always like to just, to just talk a little bit, like, uh, conversation amongst old friends. Do you guys, do you guys have any, any exciting life events? Uh, the only exciting thing in my life right now is that I ran out of zebra cakes, so I'm pretty upset about it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Alex bought zebra cakes. We've been trying to cut down on our sugar, and then Alex comes home with a box of zebra cakes and a box of Swiss cake rolls. <laughs> to be fair, I did this because you had just bought a box of this, and we yeah. just ran out. Don't act like, yeah. oh, we're getting rid of sugar. Okay, Cece yeah. just wrapped up a box of Swiss cake rolls. After we <laughs> finished that one, I was like, we're done. And uh-huh. then you came and resupplied. This was how pathetic I am. Me. About sugar, Amazon had a sale on Kit Kat bars. It was like fifty cents a bar. I was like, I'll buy it. So uh, I'm, <laughs> I've got like literally eighteen Kit Kat bars coming in the mail tomorrow. <laughs> well, you know what? It finally, the weather finally cooled down. So hopefully, if they leave them on your porch, they won't melt. Very true. Oh, melt. Yeah, and speaking of uh, reactions to the weather, spices back. Uh, my tarantula, who's oh, been yeah. absent for like six months underground, she's popped up, and I was like, oh, I can't wait till your fangs harden so I can feed you. Uh, turns out, this is like a horror movie itself, I had roaches in there for her to eat before she went absentee on me, AWOL, and they've just been living. They've basically been my pets for six months. Turns out, she waited while she was underground for her fangs to harden and promptly ate all of them. So I don't even have to feed her for a while. <laughs> oh my Well, I hope you didn't goodness. name those roaches, James. Yeah, <laughs> right? Rest in peace. This this episode is dedicated to the fallen roaches. <laughs> <laughs> how how old is how big is Spice? Compare her to an object. Uh she's about a half a dollar. Like the coin. A half a dollar Okay, for a second I was like, like half a dollar bill. That's pretty big. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah like, like <laughs> Fold the dollar bill in half and you got spice. Yeah. Half dollar coin. Good but Lord. big enough if you saw her in the wild, you would stomp her into the mm, uh, No. Just kidding, James. Mm. I found a spider in Gwen's room the other day and I caught it and I threw it outside. Nice. I was gonna say, yeah. is that the one you had me catch and throw outside? No, was- I caught it, remember? While you were changing your diaper. <laughs> um do I have any exciting life news? No, no, I don't. <laughs> wow, that was, that was <laughs> sorry, thrilling. listeners. But you know what? Maybe it'll get exciting here in a second. Alex, what is our icebreaker this week? <laughs> what is the most beautiful animal on the planet? <laughs> the most beautiful animal. <laughs> this is this is random. You're right. I had I'd, to ask something that no one would expect. And you're right. I did not expect that. Um. Not your favorite, most beautiful. Most beautiful. Okay. Uh, How about one of you two start? One of you two start. I need to think about it for a second. The answer is clearly a dolphin. (laughs) What is your your obsession with dolphins? They could take over the planet if they wanted to. We need to do a dolphin episode, apparently, because there's a lot of weird theories about dolphins, like people who think they're psychic and magic and all that. If you've ever seen one of the Halloween... Uh, episodes of The Simpsons, Triassic Oh, yeah, yeah. Dolphins take over. Well, uh, for me, it's a no-brainer, and usually people are going to assume it's probably like a butterfly or a mantis or something, but actually... Cuttlefish. <laughs> yeah, I love cuttlefish, that's for sure. But actually, like, in terms of prettiness, why are deer so pretty? They're such a pretty they animal. They're gorgeous. Yeah, they look magic. Yeah, they're beautiful. Mm, that's why we hunt. <laughs> oh, we want to hang them on the wall. I... I mm, I know, think I might might say a gazelle. 
because they're graceful and they're beautiful. And they're kind of deer like. I was about deer. to say, I was like, yeah, I, no, I totally not a shameless <laughs> rip off of mine. <laughs> yeah, way to go. James. Way to go. You got the, CC picked the generic <laughs> version of deer. Actually, it's the other yeah. way around. I guess Thank you're you. right. Well, I guess it depends on where you live, though. Ooh. Yeah, probably. I got the blue collar deer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you got, James got the blue collar deer. I got the ready to go to the Met Gala deer. I can't believe you all put picked lame, bland-based mammals. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I would say, I mean, butterflies, but they're insects, right? Insects are animals. You can't pick a butterfly. You said mammal. Uh, he said animal. Insects are still animals. Okay, then I pick a butterfly. Hands oh, that's down. That's lame. They're beautiful. Yeah, but... One flew out of the bushes at me today, and I was just so happy. So, all right. Are you going to be more excited to see... <laughs> oh, my <laughs> God. Are you going to be more excited to see a butterfly or a dolphin? You're like a dolphin supremacist <laughs> I mean, or something. This is bizarre. Yeah, I know. <laughs> dolphin... I would be excited to see a dolphin because it's not something you see every day, but whenever you see a butterfly, their wings are all unique. Yeah. By that, I'm going to be like, oh, well, then humans are my pick because every human is unique. Mm. We have unique fingerprints. I don't. James lost his fingerprints on the jelly jar, remember? It's pretty unique then, isn't it? (laughs) But is it beautiful? He doesn't have any. I think it's a beautiful disaster. (laughs) A beautiful disaster. All right. Uh, Well, you know what? Let's let's move on to what we came here to talk about, Mm. and that is famous mystics and prophets. You just – did you – you just rubbed my arm, and then all of a sudden, my ears got all staticky. What the heck? <laughs> he touched my arm, James. You guys, we're talking about famous mystics and prophets, all their ideas, how they've influenced the world, and Alex is going to start us off today. Who are you talking about, Alex? Talking about my man, Emmanuel Swedenborg. Swedenborg. Who, shockingly, is from Sweden. <gasps> Drop some knowledge on you. But here we go. I'm going to break it down for you. Why this guy is so cool. Okay, why is he so cool? All right. So, Emanuel Swedenborg was born in Stockholm, Sweden in 1688. And for most of his life, he pursued uh, sciences. And he started out as an engineer. And he created these things uh, at the Trollhattan Canal. Mm. He, he created the locks for it. Neat. So, locks to keep the water inside a canal. Yes, yes. And he even planned out Sweden's first salt works. So he was a talented engineer. Mm. Well, as this is going to be a continuing trend, and Swedenborg, he gets bored easy. So he even became a renowned inventor. And as he got older, he left inventions. And he started to pursue different sciences and made a bunch of different scientific discoveries. Most of the fields he focused on were galaxy formation, brain physiology, and anatomy. That is pretty broad. But, yeah, yeah. But some of the most interesting, but the thing is, he discovered these three big things. Pulsars, neurons, and split brain theory. Wow. So he did a lot of things. Yes. So, this is a smart guy. Yeah. Very, very scientifically intelligent, right? Yeah. But Swedenborg, again, wasn't satisfied. So, he decided to pursue what he called the seat of the soul, which he believed was in the brain's pineal gland. I knew it. And this is a gland that we still don't 100% understand even now. What is this? Oh, so he's just looking for what constitutes the soul in a human being. Yes. Okay. Now, he wasn't particularly religious. His family was when he was growing up. But Swedenborg was, it's not, he wasn't an atheist, but he wasn't particularly, he was more interested in science. Sure. Yeah. So... In an effort to unlock its secrets, Swedenborg got, I guess you would say, less scientific. Hmm. And he started to study the occult sciences. Nice. And he started doing Kabbalah, meditation, and according to a Huffington Post article, erotic exercises. Oh, yeah, Tantra. <laughs> so, you know, sounds like he turned into a pretty fun guy. Um <laughs> 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 so Swedenborg would begin to unlock the secrets of the mind. He trained himself to enter an altered state of consciousness for long periods of time. And apparently he kept many of these experiences written in a dream diary. Ooh. Uh, this is freaking me out. We've got a lot in common with Swedenborg. I know. This is this honestly, as Alex is reading this, what's coming to my brain is that someday on a podcast, 
like a hundred years from now, people are going to be talking about James, <laughs> <laughs> the mystic and prophet James. <laughs> Sorry, go on. His knowledge of spiders was legendary. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Uh, and so <laughs> inside this like realm that he was this altered state, Swedenborg found that he was able to, I guess, dive deeper into his dreams. And he began analyzing these dreams and looking into them for symbolism. Mm-hmm. And all the things he was doing is a very similar to what Freud and Jung did over a century later. Yeah. Huh. So he predated them by almost a century. And what, and what was his time again? 1688 okay, was when he was born. That was a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and so you know, he's, he's still making leaps and bounds, even in his sleep, over other people. <laughs> and through all this, Swedenborg became obsessed with a hypogogic. Hypogogic? Did I, did I Where- mistype this? Hypo- hypnogogic. 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 Yeah. State. All right. Essentially, it's this like half asleep, half dreaming state that mm. he would frequently enter and. Like lucid dreaming? Yeah. No. I like lucid dreaming. Is, no? It's. Oh, man. How do I explain this? It's a lot of like brilliant people have done this. Like uh, you, you wake yourself up just when you're on the cusp of sleep. And so you're in a, a twilight state. It's neither in nor out. You're not dreaming. You're you're awake, but the the part of your brain that would sort of be the catalyst for dreaming is still kind of firing up a little bit. So you're like super creative, like hyper creative. Okay, so you're not really asleep. You are awake. Dream- yes, that's right. Uh, okay. One of the one of the tricks I can't remember I can't remember who it was that did this one creative I want to say Da Vinci or maybe Mark Twain but somebody used to go to sleep with a coin in their hand um, so that they would drop it oh it was Dolly Salvador Dolly he'd go to sleep with like a coin in his hand and then he would drop it when he fell asleep and then the coin would hit the ground it would wake him up and then he would paint and that's that's a hypnagogic state huh, huh. interesting and. Swedenborg was considered Sweden's Da Vinci. It's kind of what a, the nickname that he was given. Uh, but all of his, his life changed forever while he was in one of these hypnagogic states. Mm. On Easter weekend, April 6th, 1744, Swedenborg was visited by Christ. Oh my God. Oh my wow. goodness. I didn't expect that. Yeah. yeah so I mean, during this, Christ. Quite the visit. <laughs> <laughs> Christ tells him to abandon science and pursue something new. That new thing? Discover the true meaning of the scripture. Well. The way Swedenborg oh. did this was through symbolism, kind of carrying on from his dream state. He, Christ led him to believe that he could decipher the entirety of the Bible through symbolism. Like a Jungian Bible. Weird. Before Jung. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he believed that symbolism was the key to linking the physical and spiritual worlds. And apparently his work in the field really kicked off the heavy use of symbolism in the 19th century, mm. which we see a lot very heavily in like literature and stuff like that. Okay. Mm. And so this guy, for the remaining 28 years of his life, as someone completely devoted to Christ, wrote 18 books. And he spent every waking moment deciphering everything about the scripture. And now that he come back in the come into contact with Christ, Swedenborg was able to travel to heaven, hell, and spirit world freely. Just through his, his uh, altered state? Yes. And so whenever he would go in the altered state, he was now allowed to go to heaven, hell, and in a spirit world. Did he ever describe what it was like? I think he did. He, and especially in this final book, he really wrote extensively about it. I didn't look too much into his descriptions of these places. You know what okay. I find fascinating about this? What? He experimented with dreams, and he was focused on the pineal gland. What happens when you dream? The pineal gland produces dimethyltryptophan, a.k.a. DMT, which is known as the spirit molecule, which you also make when you have a near-death experience. So, like, hmm. on an anatomical level, this whole idea of him being able to launch his consciousness at will... Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying it's like logical scientifically, but it's 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 at least uh, consistent. So yeah, neat. Huh. 
But he, he did briefly mention, I guess, things that were going on in heaven and hell, but he didn't go into a lot of description. And one of them is that there's a lot of, a lot of sex in heaven, but it's with your, it's always with your soulmate. You have a soulmate. He also believed that if you went to heaven and your soulmate went to heaven, if you all really loved each other, you would stick together. If you didn't, then you were assigned somebody else that, that was like your actual soulmate. Which is an interesting thing. Huh? And then hell was like, it wasn't like a Dante's Inferno type deal. It was more of a just completely miserable, insufferable place. Hmm. That's me talking off the cuff, trying to remember. Okay. But so take take with it what you will is what yeah, you're telling everybody. Take, yes. So take it with a grain of salt, but the, the sex stuff is real. Oh. Um, <laughs> 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 but so since he's able to travel through these realms, he said he started to notice a direct link between what happened on Earth and what happens to you in the afterlife. And he put an enormous emphasis on doing good to others. Like, he really pushed this out into the world. Like, be kind. Well, that, be kind. Do, do things that you should do around the house. And also, whenever you do charity, don't do it. Don't, don't expect anything in return. Never expect yeah. anything in return. Do it out of the goodness of your heart. And so he, he, he was a nice guy. Like, I always expected someone like this to kind of push his own religion, especially when this really, this really took off. See, yeah. when I hear about someone like this who's doing stuff like this, I always think of like the, I guess, the publicity you would get from it. Yeah. So it's interesting to think that he's not just in it. Like there are so many scientists who made discoveries and they just wanted to have their name out there. Right. They didn't care about actually helping people. They just wanted people to know them. Yeah. yeah. And there, there, there are movements that kind of took some of his teachings into a religion, but that was like over 150 years later. Ah. Okay. And there, it, it, it's not really even a religion anymore, really. But anyway, it will be soon. <laughs> <laughs> but he said the greatest sin was idleness. Ooh, and that's so not thing. doing anything. Not yep. doing anything. Oh my gosh! So not not taking. <laughs> not, he, he said even taking out the trash was a virtuous thing. But people that just sat there and didn't do anything and just you know sloth. I guess the sin of sloth, yeah. really. Was probably the greatest sin to him. I need to get rid of my phone. But those pursuing, <laughs> those pursuing anything really, are kind of putting good to the world. Wow. Yeah. This is inspiring. Yeah, this dude's awesome. <laughs> I'm like really glad you picked him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm I, I'm just impressed that he just seemed like such a genuine guy. Of course, you know I didn't yeah. know him. He could have been an ass, but yeah. he he seems like a really nice guy. Okay, but. Along with his contact with Christ and his ability to go between realms, Emmanuel Swedenborg also got another ability that reared its head just a few times. And that was the ability to have premonitions or feel things and know things that were happening hundreds of miles away. Nice. So on Thursday, July 19th, 1759, this fi- this big fire broke out in Stockholm, Sweden, and it covered about three hundred houses Ooh. and made two thousand people homeless. Dang. So this was a big fire. Well, when the fire broke out, Swedenborg wasn't in Stockholm. He was with friends about four hundred kilometers away, and at the exact time the fire started, while he was with friends. He started to become agitated and started telling his friends that there's a fire in Stockholm. And he knew exactly where all the fire ended and stopped all around the Dude, Obi Wan Kenobi. <laughs> but yeah, he exclaimed two hours after he started screaming or whatever. <laughs> screaming. <laughs> he wasn't screaming, but he was distressed. Hmm. He found, he, he said that. Two hours after that, he said the fire had stopped three doors from his house. And his claims had made it to everybody. Everyone had heard these claims. Even the governor of Gothenburg, which is where he was at, had heard about it and spoke to him. Three days later, Stockholm get, or Gothenburg gets news about the Stockholm fire. That's how long it, take, yeah. it took to get the news there. There's no way he could have known about right, the fire. Unless he said it. 
Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this will teach those so, idle people. There's no way. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. yeah. And, and so he correctly predicted to everyone around him, he, multiple witnesses were able to verify his claims. He predicted exactly where the fire ended and when exactly it started. Weird. Yeah. And there was, I mean, there's literally no way he could have known. So hmm. it's pretty wild. And, there's another anecdote. It's a small one and a little less verified. But in this one, there was a mill owner that Swedenborg was with. And while he was with him, he suddenly turned to him and said, you have a fire in one of your mills. And sure enough, oh, there was one. So could he just predict fires? No. <laughs> <laughs> got so another weird, one. wouldn't it? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Only fire. Only well, firepower. You know. People who set arsonists oh, tend yeah. to, you know, yeah. get addicted to. It's like getting a tattoo. Mm. So another event was in 1758. So this is a year before the, the big fire one that really was verified. Queen Elisa Ulrika of Sweden asked Swedenborg to tell her something about her deceased brother that only she would know. Swedenborg said, okay, yeah. give me a night. And I'll be right back, because you know he's, he's got to go. Tra- he's got to go uh, to his state. He had to travel, right? He had to travel, and so he goes. He comes back the next day. He whispers something into the queen's ear that turns her pale, and she says that there's there's no way anyone but her brother, who was dead, could have known mm-hmm. that. Some people. Were. What did he tell her? I don't know. It's top secret. Mystery. That's the mystery. Just people were there to see it happen. Oh man! Nice. See her visually become upset. I mean, I feel like the, uh, we've already hit the climax. I'm telling some other ones because we've got we've got another one that's it's pretty mm-hmm. interesting. Swedenborg had a woman come up to him and asked asked him if he knew where an item was. the per- The only person that knew where this item was was deceased. Guess what he did? He found the item. Well, he went home, traveled, traveled, came back, and he knew exactly where that item was that the de- de- deceased person had left. Where was it? Underneath the floorboard? No, <laughs> I don't know. I didn't ask him. But apparently several people, even when they were sailing with Swedenborg, noticed that whenever he was on the ship, they never encountered any storms. Could he, could he bar the weather? He said it was ridiculous that anyone was saying that. But many sailors claimed that any time he was with them, they couldn't believe how smooth the Weird. sail was. But he, he always... His response to that was pretty much that you're giving me too much credit. I'm not doing anything. He's a humble guy. Yeah. He's gotta be he's gotta be humble. But one of the most the most interesting thing, I, even more than the fire maybe, was that Swedenborg he wrote a letter to a man named John Wesley. The two men did not know each other. John Wesley sounds familiar. Yeah, I think John Wesley is a big mm-hmm. figure. Uh founder of Methodism. That might be why. Oh yeah. Um, that guy. Yeah. So he wrote a letter to John Wesley. The two men did not know each other. Hmm. But Swedenborg said that he was told to write a letter to him and kind of, he just let, what he does is he lets John Wesley know that he is going to die. And he tells John Wesley the date and the date that he is going to die. Because everybody wants to know that. Yeah. 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 And he wrote a letter to John Wesley and they got, they became, they wrote a letter back and John Wesley said to him, when I get back after the holidays, I would really be glad to be glad to meet you. And he said, well, when you get back, Mm -hmm. I won't be here anymore. That's what John Wesley said? No, that's what Swedenborg said. Okay. And Swedenborg mm. had a stroke and died. So Swedenborg knew he was going to die. I thought you meant John Wesley mm. knew he was going to die. No, 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 no. Swedenborg had a stroke right mm. before Christmas. Okay. Okay. Right after that, he had started writing mm. John Wesley. And John Wesley was going out of town over the weekend of over the week of March 29th. Okay. 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 So. John Wesley was like, hey, you know, it'd be really nice for us to get together when I get back from my trip. And (laughs) Swedenborg wrote to him, 
I'm sorry, friend. It'll be too late. He literally ghosted him. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And so he said that he was going to be going to the spirit realm and that everyone around him knows that he was kind of jubilant about it. Nice. He had already had a stroke, but he was showing very happy. Like he knew he was going somewhere good. And he told John Wesley that he would he would die on March 29th. And sure enough, he did. That's when he died. Yeah. Man. Well, I just looked up a picture of him. He looks like a he looks like a happy dude in his little powdered wig. <laughs> Holding up a little book. He does in like all of his little paintings. Usually, you know, when when people got their paintings made way back when, they always look kind of sullen and sad. That's true. But he looks like he's like, yeah. He's like, I just went to heaven. And then I came back. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, Swedenborg, the whole reason that he had really talked to Wesley was because the spirits had told him that John Wesley wanted to talk to him. Dang. Oh, sure that John enough, Wesley wanted to talk to Swedenborg. Yeah. And sure enough, John Wesley had been thinking about Swedenborg and wanted to talk to him. Well, I mean, those spirits, they know what's going on. Their friendship. Well. I mean, what better way to start a friendship than tell them, hey, bro, I'm going to die. So (laughs) I'm going to die. It's been nice (laughs) talking to you. But he seems like a nice guy. I actually really like Swedenborg. He predicted his death. I mean, he's useful. And he's nice. And he taught us to not be idle. Don't (laughs) sit on your butt too much. Don't do it. Well... That's awesome. James, do you have anything you want to add to the Swedenborg conversation? I know that there's a Swedenborg Society. Yes. And it's $15 to join. <laughs> so James is <laughs> J- going to J- be joining. <laughs> James has already made a deposit. Yes. <laughs> All right, you guys. Is it my turn? Yep. Okay. Yeah. All right, guys. Um, listeners, today I will be talking about the fascinating life of Helena Blavatsky. She sounds like she's going to suck someone's blood. Helena Blavatsky. I, and I'll admit off the top here, she's an intimidating character to cover. Because mm. James was like, hey, Cece, you should cover Helena. And I was like, sure, why not? And then I started looking <laughs> into her and I was like, holy crap. This is a lot. So she's, she covers a lot of ground, which actually kind of like, I guess, took me by surprise spiritually. Mm. She, she covers a lot of ground when it comes to strange and mystical. And she tied a lot of topics together that we've actually already talked about on our podcast, which I thought was really interesting. But she's all spiritual and kind of out there. So I'm going to try my best to describe her work and contributions to spiritualism and the new age movement in a way that like everyday people can understand. Because there were, I pulled out the dictionary a lot while I was researching her, you guys. <laughs> I don't know what that says about me, but. I had to use it. All right. So are y'all ready to learn about Madame Blavatsky? Is she a yep. vampire? Mm, you know, there is actually a vampire reference in here. Oh, so, okay. Yeah. Mm. Madame Blavatsky is one of the world's most famous and also notorious occultists. Oh, notorious. Yeah. She helped found the Theosophical Society in 1875. And she's well known for kind of bringing about like the New Age movement. And her life mission, according to her, was to bring spiritual enlightenment to the Western world. So, tiny task, right? Yeah. She was born into an upper-class family as Helena Petrovna von Hahn on August 12th, 1831. Uh, My grandmother was born... In 1831? No, on on August 12th. (laughs) She shares my grandmother's birthday. But... Mm. Blavatsky was born in part of Russia that is now technically a part of Ukraine. So having been born into an upper-class family, she obviously got to enjoy the finer things in life. She's very well-educated. She learned all these different languages. She learned English and French. She learned how to play the piano. Apparently, she was very, very good with musical instruments. Um, She learned all about art. You know, she was was flying high. But she also... Apparently, like, spending time with, like, lower-class children. So she was also kind of down to earth. Uh, yeah. I, assuming she doesn't eat them, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I, I feel like she uh, she's a very interesting character. Like, And I'll tell talk a little bit more about, like, just her personality a little bit later. But I don't feel like mm. she was all entirely hoity-toity. Mm. She wasn't, like, she didn't, didn't drink her, her tea with her, her pinky out. 
<laughs> she didn't have to spend time with these, let's just say, lower class children. Yeah, she liked um, playing pranks with the local hoodlums. Oh, she was very jokey. I can get I can get down with that. You know, well, let me continue. <laughs> a lot of biographers actually said that she was a captivating storyteller, okay? So she could really captivate an audience. Spin a yarn, as they say. Yeah. She had a temper and one biographer. Marion Mead said that she was, quote, an eccentric who abided by no rules except her own. Sound like a rebel. She is, yeah, she's a rebel with a cause because she had to bring spiritual enlightenment <laughs> to the Western world, yes. okay? Yes. Yeah. Sadly, <laughs> when she was 12, her mother did pass away from tuberculosis and she was sent to <laughs> live with her grandparents. While living with them, you guys, she came across her great grandfather's personal library. You guys, guess what he was? A mystic. He was actually Merlin the whole time. You guys, he was a Freemason. Her great grandfather. Oh yeah. my gosh, they're in the airport, the Denver airport. Well, his name <laughs> was Prince Pavel Vasilvich Dolgorukov. I think that's how you say he it. He definitely drinks vodka. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> I couldn't find much information on him, but on Wikipedia, it did say that he was rumored to have rubbed elbows with Count St. Germain. Oh, James. Ooh, no, so I'm, I'm saying actually that's James. Yeah, <laughs> James. Uh, yeah probably. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so back to his personal library, you guys. Blavatsky's great-grandpa had a bunch of books on esoteric subjects, which just totally piqued her interest. FYI, for anyone who doesn't know what esoteric means, because <laughs> <laughs> this is one of the words. This is, this is one of the words. It means requiring or exhibiting knowledge that is restricted to a small group, like the Freemasons. Mm. Yeah, people have called me esoteric in the past, and I just kind of laughed and said, Haha, "Yeah, <laughs> I know what it means now, you guys." Okay, so we appreciate your honesty. Yeah. Well, I'm, you know, I'm here. I don't want everybody to think that I'm hoity-toity. Hey, you're just like Blavatsky. I'm just, I'm just a like a, a for like blue collar dolphin. All right, no, I'm a, I'm a blue collar deer. A blue collar dolphin. <laughs> <laughs> I want to watch a show with blue collar dolphins now. <laughs> well, as a child, let's get back to Blavatsky. As a child, she said that she would experience visions of a mysterious Indian man. Mm-hmm. More on him in a second. But Helena did get married to a guy named Nikifor Vladimirovich Blavatsky, which is where she gets her last name. Mm-hmm. But the marriage was very <clears throat> short-lived, you guys. Apparently, she she married him. She agreed to marry him because she liked that he believed in magic, I guess. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> of course. Believe in yeah. magic. I guess that was not enough mm-hmm. for the marriage to last, though, because they did split... Just a couple months into the marriage. Mm, you could say that the relationship wow. didn't have any magic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, the relationship did not have any magic. There weren't sparks there. Um, but after they split, she started off on her world journeys where she would develop her philosophies over time and kind of come into the – she would become the person that we know of today. But she traveled everywhere, you guys. She went to Eastern Europe and Egypt and India and Japan – I read somewhere that she's probably one of the most well-traveled people in the world at the time. But Hmm. during these travels, you guys, guess who she ran into? She (laughs) ran into that mysterious Indian man from her visions. Oh, What are the odds? Mm -hmm. Yeah, she says his name was Master Moria. Is that how you say it, James? Do you know of this guy? I I think so, yeah. Yeah, Master Moria. Or Morio. He was Hindu. And told her that she must travel to Tibet because she had a special mission in life. So off she went to Tibet. Huh. Yeah. Cool. James is just, he's just waiting for the mysterious Indian man to appear in his life and tell him that he needs to go to Tibet. Who's to say I'm not that dude? Oh my God. <laughs> well, yeah, what if James, at the very end of this episode, James is going to tell us that we have to go to Tibet, Alex? Oh man. So, <laughs> Jay, hey, what if Moria is actually St. Germain? Bum, bum, you're, bum. Now you're getting out there. <laughs> well, in yeah. Tibet. Has anybody ever seen St. Germain, Moria, and me in the same room at the same time? <laughs> That's <laughs> a good point. Okay, sorry. Yeah. Could you go for it. Well, in Tibet, Blavatsky <laughs> said she studied with Moria and his pal, Master Kut Humi. I love that name. 
There's always there's always <laughs> one person in my studies, in my research for this podcast, whose name I'm just like, I love that name. Kut Humi. And Blavatsky, she learned an ancient language called Senzar. And with this knowledge, she was able to translate ancient texts. And the masters, that being Moria and Kut Humi, they helped her fine-tune her psychic abilities, like astral projection and telepathy and how to dematerialize tangible objects. Like she could just make like a coffee cup disappear. Mm. Does this sound familiar to you guys? Sounds like magic. Does it sound like mm-hmm. a specific Marvel character to you? Doctor uh, Strange. Doctor Strange. Strange. Yeah, goes to study in a temple. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh my goodness. I, I, as I was reading this, all I could picture was him, and now I just want to rewatch the movie. Can we watch that this mm. movie? <laughs> sure. I've never <laughs> had trouble watching a Marvel movie. Yeah. Well, I hate to cast any shadow of doubt on old Blavatsky, right? But almost everything that we know about her at least with her travels, especially in Tibet, it's all hearsay. This is all mm. just according to her. There's not really anybody that can kind of back up what she says because she wrote everything. And don't forget, she knows how to spin a yarn. She knows how to spin a yarn, you guys. According to mm. a YouTube channel called Fringe Pop 321. <laughs> For a second, I thought you meant that she had a YouTube channel. <laughs> <laughs> she, she might. <laughs> but this, mm. this YouTube channel, that's where I got most of my information on Blavatsky. It was really interesting, and I probably, that was where my rabbit hole came in to play with this specific topic because I ended up watching like seven of the videos. But a historian named Paul Johnson thinks that Master Morio may have not existed at all. He might have all been inside Blavatsky's brain because nobody can verify his existence. What if she's a? What if he was a tulpa? I know. I was like, what if? Because she knew how to meditate. She knew how to meditate and do all these things. What if she just created him? But then at the same time, like he told her to go to Tibet in the first place. So maybe she like made him when she was a kid. I don't know. Hmm. It's weird. It's she's an interesting character. Okay, Did so let's sure. flash forward to her time in the United States. Okay, are you ready? To hear about the United States. Okay. So she was sent there for her special mission per Master Moria. And she arrived in New York City in 1873. She's about 42 years old at this time. And her goal in the U.S. was to prove that psychic phenomena, initially, this is her goal, was to prove that psychic phenomena like astral projection and things like that were real and observable. But she traveled to Crittenden, Vermont in 1874 because she heard about mediums William and Horatio Eddy. They were these brothers who could speak to spirits and levitate objects, but they were later outed as frauds, FYI, Hmm. as were most mediums at the time. Right, James? Yep. Yeah. While she was visiting them, she met a lawyer named Henry Steele Olcott, who Uh. would later help Blavatsky found the Theosophical Society. Yep. He's the guy whose book appeared to me in that bookstore, and I still got it. Yeah. So so when you say it appeared to you, do you mean like you're just looking at the bookshelf, and then all of a sudden there's like a light that just, it just like, and you saw the book, and we're just like, have to buy it. It's kind of like that, except I was looking at the bookshelf, and it was the only book that like stood out for some reason. Like every other book was just kind of blurry. It's kind of like when you're taking an eye exam, and you know, like some of the letters are clear and some of them ain't. It was kind of like that. And I, yeah, I bought it because it was like the only one that stood out. James. Yep. <laughs> yeah. That's a nonsense toaster. How dare you? Have you read it at all? <laughs> yeah, it's been very interesting. Only when he does incantations. Well, James, have you read yeah. any of Blavatsky's work? You know, I haven't. I, at some point, I'm going to have to look for the Akashic Records. But yeah, so I'm gonna, far, no. I'm going to talk about it in just a little bit. But yeah. Theosophy kind of trips me up, you guys. And I bet that James could probably describe it better than myself, but I know he hates being put on the spot. So I'm just going to try and stay above the surface with it. I'm going to try to not drown here, you guys. But theosophists believe in mystical experiences and esoteric teachings. And according to Britannica.com, those who believe in theosophy believe there is a, quote, deeper spiritual reality and that direct contact with reality can be established through intuition, meditation, revelation, and some other state transcending normal human consciousness. End quote. You summed it up perfectly. Yeah, that direct quote from Britannica.com really got it. <laughs> 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 but I do think it's very important to note that at the time that Blavatsky and Olcott kind of started this theosophical movement, there was a lot going in the world. 
that I guess they were trying to help explain. So at this time, when the whole spiritualist movement was starting, Christianity was kind of coming under scrutiny because science was starting to butt heads with it. So Mm. Christianity teaches us the world is only so old with God at the center and he's created everything. Meanwhile, at the same time, Charles Darwin came about with his theory on evolution and geologic studies were showing that the earth is much older than people thought it to be. So Blavatsky kind of find like found like some middle ground between both of these topics. And she kind of tried to tie them together, at least from what I could tell the spiritual and the scientific. Mm-hmm. So the three main goals of the theosophical society were quote, to form a nucleus of the universal brotherhood of humanity without distinction of race, creed, sex, caste, or color to encourage the study of comparative religion, philosophy, and science and to investigate unexplained laws of nature and the powers latent in human beings. So apparently, um, I mean, obviously I've mentioned that Blavatsky said that she herself was psychic, but she, I guess she was kind of known because she would hear like the the taps and rapping on like around her house, spirits knocking on the door and the cabinets and all that stuff. Yeah. We've got a tree outside like that. Yeah. Well, she, Yeah. (laughs) But Blavatsky would go on to write two very important books, but the first being Isis Unveiled. Isis Unveiled, it was basically an outlining of her worldview, and in it she tries to bring attention to the fact that most religions have some pretty important similarities, uh, which she calls ancient wisdoms. But she also kind of calls out like Darwin for not taking the spiritual realm into consideration with regards to evolution. So she's trying to find that middle ground, you guys. But her second book, and this was the, the I guess, more popular book of the two, it was called The Secret Doctrine. And uh, it, yeah. Yeah, it just basically further explained her beliefs, but it also outlined how she thinks humanity came to be and its demise in the future, I guess. And she said there's something called root races. Have you ever heard of root races, James? Mm, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the the progenitors of the modern races of man. Yeah, it, and it has nothing to do with how we define race nowadays. It's more like species right. of beings, I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But she says there were seven root races divided into seven sub-races, and that beings began entirely as spirit, but a race would end in cataclysm, and then the next race would spring up from those that survived, you know, the cataclysm. And... I yeah. thought this was interesting. The Atlanteans were one of the seven root races. What? Yep. Yeah. Some of them were, gi- yep. and some of them were said to be giants. And they say, and Blavatsky says that that's how the pyramids and Stonehenge were built. Yeah. Weird stuff. Um, yeah. Weird stuff. Yeah, the, the Nazis took a lot of her ideas about that and incorporated them. They thought that the Germans descended from Atlantis based on her theories. Based it's on kind of put a shadow over some of her work because of that. Well, Blavatsky, she she did unsurprisingly come under some serious scrutiny over the years. Mm. And I didn't read anything about the Nazis, but a lot of people claim mm. that she was a charlatan and a fraud and that she was very egotistical, which I could totally see. Uh, mm. She apparently was a bit abrasive, you guys. Yeah, you mentioned she had a hot she was hot-headed earlier. She's hot-headed. She also apparently did not enjoy social events and obligations. She's like, no, I'm staying home. Uh, who does? I know, right? I can, yeah. I can understand that one. <laughs> but I can say personally that I think she just she just didn't give a, a crap what anyone thought about her, which I kind of respect. Hmm. Like she, right. uh, a lot of, I read a whole bunch of like physical descriptions of her. And if you look up a picture of her, she was a very disheveled woman. Uh, one biographer, Peter Washington, described her physically as being a, quote, short, stout, forceful woman with strong arms, several chins, unruly hair, a determined mouth, and large, liquid, slightly bulging eyes. Oh, my so. God. so mean. <laughs> yeah. Who did that? That was mm. savage. It was Peter Washington. Look up a picture of her. I am. That, I mean, I don't. It <laughs> was way meaner than she looks. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's definitely mean, but... She doesn't have many chins. That's... <laughs> <laughs> well, she passed away in 1891 of the flu, but her thoughts and ideas would obviously live on, uh, helping spark the New Age movement many years later. She inspired a lot of people, you guys. Obviously, James mentioned the Nazis, but... Um, I'm talking about, like, more creative people who... like. She inspired Sir Arthur 
Conan Doyle, who we've spoken about several times in our oh. show. Lewis Carroll, who wrote Alice in Wonderland. T.S. Nope. Eliot, Kurt Vonnegut. The list really goes on and on. But I'd love to see a biopic about her with Kathy Bates playing her. That's you know that's who I pictured whenever I was like because I I was trying to like put a face to her for. Mm. Do not tell me that that awful description got you to Kathy Bates. No, it didn't. Kathy Bates. <laughs> the pictures did. Yeah, no. <laughs> Just I feel like Kathy Bates could carry could carry this role with grace. I will say that Blavatsky looks like a definite curmudgeon. Cur- curmudgeon. <laughs> All right, that's Alex's takeaway on Blavatsky. But yeah, that's Helena Blavatsky. We get a lot, a lot of stuff that we're probably going to talk about in the future is kind of inspired by her thoughts. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. So yeah, that's Helena. Madame Blavatsky. I've heard of Moria before, but I've never heard of Blavatsky. All right, James, you're talking about John D? Yep, John D. All right, tell us about him. Yeah, well, you know, John D. like uh, like Swedenborg was a real polymath, real Renaissance man. Um, there seems to be an interesting connection there between science, philosophy, uh, just overall being a polymath, and then the occult. There's a. It's almost like people learn a whole lot about the world, and then they want to go dig deeper. And John D. definitely fits the bill. Uh, he was born in um, fifteen twenty seven. <laughs> in 1527 in uh, what is now Surrey, England, uh, which isn't that where Harry Potter lived? I wonder if there's a connection. There probably is since Blavatsky was the uh, the author of one of his textbooks in the books. But uh, anyway, he was born in, uh, in Surrey and his dad was just a textile merchant who sold clothes to uh, Henry VIII. Ooh. And yeah, well, John Dee, for being such a smart fella, uh, especially with regard to astronomy, he quickly shot up in Queen Mary, Bloody Mary's court. But then, no joke, she arrested him in 1555 for calculating. Bloody calculating. Mary arrest yeah, Bloody Mary arrested him for math. Like <laughs> that's that's the state that England was during this period. It was literally like, nerd, you're going to jail. Because like <laughs> apparently math was on par with magic and Thankfully, one of his friends who was a bishop, he had a lot of friends in high places, was like, come on, Bloody Mary. He didn't call her Bloody <laughs> Mary. But he was like, come on, Queen Mary. You, you, you got to pardon this guy. He's pretty great. So she did. Well, not long after Queen Elizabeth I, her father, King Henry VIII, dies. And so now she's going to be in charge of England. So quick question, you guys. When was she coronated? Trick question. The answer is when John D. says... <laughs> Because she trusted, <laughs> yeah, because she trusted his uh, magical knowledge so much that he actually picked the date for her coronation, uh, based on so you know what the heavens would. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he this was like an astronomical succession. He literally goes from uh, just a nobody in his youth to big mover and shaker in the court. Then he gets arrested. Then when she starts to take over. Uh, he just becomes her power behind the throne almost. Uh, and again, it's not surprising given what a polymath he was. This was a dude who excelled at geography, at multiple languages, uh, numerous, numerous mathematical, obviously, because he got arrested for it. Uh, he actually coined the term British Empire. That's He, he was a, an imperialist back when that wasn't really much of a thing. And he was like, yeah, we need to expand Britain and become a British empire. So in some ways, he might even be responsible for that. Uh, he he introduced the plus minus division and, and multiplication signs to England from uh, the rest of Europe. And he actually tried to get England to adopt the modern uh, calendar, the Gregorian calendar. And unfortunately, <laughs> the British government, again, this is the same people who arrested him for doing math. They were like, that's too Catholic. We're not using the modern calendar. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Uh, but in, and, and he rubbed shoulders with so many intellectuals of the time, including, no joke, John, or not John, uh, oh shoot, what was his first name? The Mercator guy, like literally where we get Mercator maps. Like that was one of his friends. <laughs> so, yeah, interesting stuff. But he was the guy who, who us just advised Elizabeth on just about everything. Like it, it, any decision she made, usually it kind of ran by.
by him because of his mystical knowledge. And this is a creepy thing to know. There's a painting of him showing a science experiment to Elizabeth and wowing her. It just got like, you know, him, uh, he's basically, it's, it's almost like in the movies when you try to show like interesting science experiments, he's like sprinkling different metal powders into fire and making it change colors. Well, the painting shows him doing that and Queen Elizabeth's on her crown and she's all fascinated and you see all the court members. Well, in 2016, mm-hmm. just, yeah, three years ago, we decided to x-ray that painting because a lot of paintings turns out have interesting secrets when you x-ray them because you can paint on top of them, right? The original version, the version that was painted before the the accepted version, just doesn't show the court members at all. It just shows Elizabeth on her throne and John D. And in this version, he is surrounded by a ring of human skull. Oh, oh my god! I'm looking at it right yeah. now, James. Oh. Yeah. yeah. And speaking of, uh, again, Harry Potter references, because, again, there's all sorts of occult stuff in Rolling Stuff. Uh, the experiment, you can see it, Alex. He's putting metal into a uh, flaming goblet. It's a goblet of fire. I know. That's what. Oh, I, oh, that's oh, the first oh. thing that I noticed in the, the picture. Was... Yeah. And uh, guess, guess what his code was when he wrote... Uh, Queen Elizabeth, because they would communicate in secret. They would send secret letters. Guess what his code name was? I, his code name? Skull Candy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 007. 007? Yeah, that's where that comes from. That's the dude's responsible for flipping everything, man. Wild stuff. That's awesome. I had no <laughs> I mean, idea. Like, like, the more you learn about this guy, the, the crazier he flipping is. Um, but the most famous thing that he's known for, at least to me, the most famous thing in a cult esoteric circle is is he's responsible for Enochian magic and Enochian script, which is a language that he claims was dictated to him by angels. And it was the language that Adam used to name everything. So the true names of everything is in Enochian and uh, it's an alphabet, very similar to ours, except it looks flipping cool. It looks almost, they're like glyphs. And actually, he was the first person to use a glyph in lieu of his name, and it looks astonishingly similar to the glyph that Prince used. <laughs> so I just think that's kind of neat that he was a trendsetter even then. So, but yeah, Enochian script is associated with a lot of occult things nowadays, especially the Goetia, the list of demons and their proper names and how to summon them and control them. No. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, presumably, uh, I think one one of our episodes, we actually talked about, oh, yeah, that's right, the uh, missing people episode. We talked about how Elizabeth had to fight the Spanish Armada, right? Yeah. You know, it was such a surprise victory because they had this massive, massive fleet of enormous ships, and then they just get battered by storms. And then our the, the British... Navy's much smaller Navy was able to just like wipe them out. Well, some people think D did that. Some people claim that D summoned the storm. So he's kind of like the opposite of uh, Swedenborg. I was, supposed, and I was about to say Swedenborg <laughs> was away. So the storm yeah. was there. Yeah, exactly. And just a lot of, when we think of wizards, when we think of, uh, of magic, a lot of the things he's associated with the, that iconography, he's the guy who had a crystal ball. He's the guy who had uh, a seeing stone similar to the, the palindirs, the big magic balls in uh, the Lord of the Rings. He's the guy who used to scry to communicate with angels. For those of you who don't know, scrying is a process where you take water and you place it in a shallow basin and then you use the reflections to see things that are otherwise hidden. And uh, uh, just a lot of the things that uh, we associate when we think of wizards and and conjurers and things of that sort i mean he's just in my opinion he's the archetypal magician uh with a k like when i think of a magician i don't think of merlin i don't think of uh alistair crowley i think of john d that's why i picked him because just an amazing dude and he wrote several books uh many of which influenced the rosicrucians um even even his monus hieroglyphica was actually used as a symbol for the Rosicrucians. For those of you who don't know, the Rosicrucians were the precursors to what some people claim to be the Illuminati today. So, uh, yeah, massive, uh, massive legacy, this guy. Yeah. Uh, he owned a magic mirror made out of obsidian, from uh, presumably from the Aztecs. Now, nobody's really sure about that. Like, a lot of these things, like his crystal ball, you can see it in the... Uh, 
uh, Museum of Science in London today. So a you lot guys, of we need to go. Right? Yeah. Wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> uh, I mean, just there's so many cool things. And in fact, he was such an inspirational, bizarre character that he was the inspiration for Shakespeare's Prospero in The Tempest, which is my favorite Shakespearean play, probably because it's about a wizard. And he was the he was the dude who who inspired that. So I don't know. That's just like super cool. And he actually accumulated like like under four thousand, but over four or sorry, under five thousand, but over four thousand books. That's a lot of effing books. Uh, He actually. Yeah, this was what a polymath he was. He had more books than Cambridge or Oxford had during his day. Like that's where did he keep them? Right, that's I have no idea. <laughs> like it, it's it's crazy to even consider. Um, that's that's just how brilliant he was, though. He, think about that. He went through that many books and acquired that many. Uh, but everybody thought he was a wizard. Everybody like like to a point where he actually wrote after Elizabeth's death. He actually wrote to uh, King James the First, like you got to help me. Like you got to give me some kind of legal protection because people keep calling me a wizard. And at some point they're, they're going to burn me. <laughs> you know, that's going to happen. <laughs> so, so actually one of the ways around this, uh, he wasn't pleased about this, but he was actually named warden of Christ's college in Manchester. And that was really, uh, I think it was to save his life. But he didn't see it that way. He thought that he was just kind of fallen from grace in London and that they didn't want him in the big city. I think King James was just like, we got to get D out of London or they're going to burn him. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but yeah, and uh, it's just one of the things that's fascinating is he actually would work with other wizards. You know, it's easy to think of a wizard as like a solitary thing, but he did stuff with a lot of other people, uh, including Edward Kelly, who's kind of a famous for being like a fake magician uh he's worth in, uh, researching but i'm not going to get into it now because it's like a, its own topic but oh man it's just it's just wild like all the things he did like i'm actually i thought it would be easy to like condense this but it's it's so hard because he did so much uh, it's just astonishing uh especially his relationship with edward kelly because there's a lot of theories and I'm actually inclined to believe that Edward Kelly took advantage of him and, and cucked him. Like Edward Kelly was basically plowing his much younger wife. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't actually know that for sure though. That's just a speculative thing, but I read a book. That's, that's just James coming up yeah. with information. Well, well, there's a book, there's actually a famous book called the occult. That's actually just the name of it. And it's about all these different wizards, including Blavatsky. And it, it highlights the relationship that the two had. And it's, it's just very suspicious. It's like super weird that Edward Kelly and him like kind of live together and his relationship with Dee's wife. It's just really, it's a little suspicious is all I'm going to say. And uh, the way that he, his life kind of ended, it, you know, it started off with obscurity and then he just shot up. Well, he kind of ends with obscurity, too, because he died basically as warden of Christ's College. And at that point, he he wasn't good with money, guys. Like, he was good with magic. That that should be an expression. Good with magic, bad with money, because so many of these people <laughs> die broke, and he was no exception. He had to start <sighs> selling stuff, like really cool stuff, like magic artifacts that he owned. And... His goblet of fire. Yeah, his goblet of fire. And uh, his daughter had to take care of him uh, by near the end. And, and, you know, when he when he died in 1608, he was 81. So, I mean, that's not that's not bad. I mean, he lived a long effing time. But it just wasn't the way you'd imagine a wizard to go out. You'd think he'd either be burned at the stake or or vanish or, I don't know, something cool. But it was really more of just a slow process to the end uh, for him. But he did get a, a really cool memorial plaque just five years ago, um, which we also oh, yeah. need to visit. Yeah, at St. Mary's, the Virgin Mortlake, which, you know, is next to Christ okay. the College. Christ College. Blah. So so what you're telling me is that 2020, we're going to take a trip to England. Yeah. We're going to go and look at the plaque for John D. There we go. We're going to go look at the church 
where the black shuck burnt the wood, and we're going to go look for the Beast of Exmoor. Yeah. Next more. Yeah. Also, there we go. Yeah. yeah. And oh, you know what? Let me give you a physical description too, because I think it's perfect. Well, tell me what you think when you when you. He looks this. like a wizard. Yeah, exactly. He was tall and thin. Yeah. He wore a gown like an artist's gown with hanging sleeves and a slit. He had a sanguine complexion, a long beard as white as milk. That's that's Gandalf. He's Gandalf. Yeah. No, you know who I think it is. What? Dumbledore. Yeah, yeah. He is more Dumbledore than Gandalf. That's true. Yeah. Oh man! And he's got the little, the little obsidian mirror. Yeah. Um, but you know, he kind of he, another thing he's well known for is is hermeticism, which I'm not going to get too far into because a lot of at some point we're going to talk about other wizards and mystics, and that's kind of a common theme. In fact, at some point we need to cover Herme, Hermes Trismegistus. I know that we discussed possibly doing it for this episode. Some point we we got to do that. But uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, I'm trying to think of like other things. Like I said, he did so much that like trying to condense it down into a 20, 25 minute conversation is like really hard. But the bottom line is he knew so much in terms of, of mathematics and occultism and uh, so many academic things that it's, it's, it's almost impossible that he needs his own movie as well. I know that I say that every time I cover somebody, but yeah, he absolutely needs his own movie. Uh, yeah. And it, 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 it actually... You got to write it, yeah, James. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny. Me and Alex, we both took a class about King Charles's uh, era. The, the You remember, you know, Miss Sunshine's class? Oh. Oh, Alex just... Yeah. Oh, you didn't like it? Oh. Yeah, well, King Charles's doctor, before they cut his head off, was actually Dee's son. Arthur. It's a small world is what you're telling me, James. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. What wow. are the odds that you and Alex would be in the same English class learning about this material and so many years later, we would be here on the 13th Floor podcast talking about it? Yeah. The universe, It's almost guys. as if it was, yeah, it is a divinity with a yeah. capital D. I, I saw visions of this years ago. Yeah. <laughs> when Alex fell asleep and he was dreaming of it, he I got all the, the symbolism. I was in a hypnagogic state. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, one thing that I think is really interesting about all of the people that we've talked about today and a lot of other like mystics is that they really do. They have like, you know, these, these powers that they have, but they're all very grounded in science. Yeah. Which Agreed. is interesting. Cause usually people who, believe in science especially nowadays it's like if i if i don't have physical tangible proof that this exists then it doesn't exist right but these people are like you know entering hypnagogic states <laughs> or like blavatsky making materials or making objects materialize into thin air like it's pretty impressive yeah okay yeah. i wish i could do that yeah me too and James, you mentioned you mentioned the Akashic records. What are those? Uh, the Akashic records are her version of all of human history. Uh, and Akasha, if I remember right, means ether, like like the sky or or the material that space is made out of. It's it's like if you don't believe her, then it's like this weird fan fiction version of the history of the world. <laughs> and if you do believe her, then it is the valid history of the world and it's it, it incorporates a lot of things like the origins the evolution of humanity from those uh seven uh root races uh, root races yeah as well as historical events like an alternative version of them you know like what were the egyptians really doing and so forth huh yeah interesting well cool yep. james that's awesome thank you for teaching us thank about you. john d yeah you're welcome he was a baller huh? He was he a baller, was. as Alex He's said. a real renaissance man. Oh, he's a renaissance man in the renaissance. I didn't even think of that. <laughs> Oof. He was the original. He was the OG. Yeah. <laughs> Do you guys have anything that you want to add to the conversation before we all hit the hay for the night? Uh, hmm. Swedenborg was an interesting man. He sure was. I liked him. <laughs> I liked him. You guys, we all need to get together and write a movie that incorporates all three of our mystics. Mm. A magic competition. 
Yeah, magic competition. <laughs> well, well, Wizard D duel. versus mm. D. Oh no! Hey, if and then someone Swedenborg else makes that movie, comes in and says, "You guys, no." Swedenborg comes in at the very end, and he's like, "You guys, we need to be good. We can't be <laughs> idle, but we can't be fighting. It's he'd be, he'd be like, Blavatsky, get off your butt, you lazy oaf." No, she wasn't lazy. She was all over the place, man. She traveled all over the world. She certainly was not idle, and it sounds to me like John D was not idle, and we nope. know Swedenborg was not idle. John D was so not idle, he got arrested for math. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, guys. Well, that was that was a very fun episode. Listeners, we hope you found it insightful. We would be picking a topic out of the vase, but next week we're going to kind of abandon the vase for a minute. And since our next episode is coming out on Halloween, we are going yeah. to be recording an episode all about special Halloween ceremonies. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to be covering what what are we going to be covering James specifically? Uh, I think we're covering Samwin, Oban and El Dia de los Muertos. Uh, <laughs> so you guys stay tuned for that. It's going to be great. If you don't follow us already on Twitter, <laughs> our Twitter's not really kept up. What? I don't believe you. But let me check it and post something right now. Oh, yeah, Alex is going to post something m- mid-record. <laughs> you can follow us on Twitter at 13th floor pod or you can follow us on instagram at 13th floor podcast i try to post pictures there occasionally that's a little bit more Mm -hmm. and then we also have our facebook page which we post to more often and also if you enjoy this podcast you guys please do us a favor please rate review and subscribe let us know what you think if you have any topics that you want to send us we've gotten quite a few this past i would say two weeks from listeners that are in the vase right now waiting to be drawn. We didn't draw any this week because next week, remember Halloween. But the week after, we're going to see if we get any of your topics. Yeah. You can send those mm-hmm. to 13th Floor Podcast. It's number one, the number three, TH Floor Podcast at gmail.com. Alex, who does our music? Our song is Signal by Grant Cook. You can find his music on Spotify, YouTube Music, iTunes, anywhere you listen to your music. Well, if that's all we have, I guess it's time to head out. I'm going to bed because I'm not being idle tomorrow and I'm going to peer bar class. So I'm going to sleep. (laughs) Um, You guys, until next time, we hope that you keep keep it it strange. I'm not good at snapping. It's just not me. This episode is dedicated to the fallen roaches.